being those scriptures to our hearts so that we can understand them. We're going to look at a, a difficult passage, and I know that the Lord is going to give much light as we look into it. So I'll invite you uh, to turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We'll be spending most of our time in this text, especially in verses 14 through 26. I'm just going to go with the scriptures that are in my notes here because my Bible will not stay on the pulpit. Now, before we read the passage, I'll just introduce by saying this is one of the most controversial passages in all of scripture. It is so stark in its declarations that even great men such as Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon have been profoundly perplexed by it, challenged by it. Spurgeon berated Luther for calling James an epistle of straw. But he also said that if he had to be without either James or Paul, he would choose Paul and leave James simply because Paul's writings focus more specifically on Christ and have a more deliberate focus on the gospel. Still, the book of James is part of God's word. It is inspired as, as inspired as any other of the scriptures, and the difficult sayings that it contains have a purpose. The truth is that if we only had this little passage in James to lay out the nature of saving faith, Christianity would be a radically different religion. But praise God, we have not only this one passage, but an entire volume scribed by 40 authors over 1,500 years. Each voice, each book is like a voice in a choir, skillfully singing its part in the chorus that is called justification by faith. This afternoon we will see and see clearly that far from being out of harmony with the chorus, James 2 verses 14 through 26 introduces counterpoint notes that add balance and nuance and dynamic to an already magnificent declaration of divine grace. Please turn your attention now to James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. We'll read from the English Standard Version. As we read, I would like you to compare what James says in this passage to the passage that Clay read at the beginning of our service. If you can remember that, it was Galatians chapter 3. And if you keep those two passages and, and the content of them in mind, it will help to prepare our minds for the task of reconciling or harmonizing the message of these two authors. So James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham your father, our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. 
you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now if you know the gospel, you can see that if we only had this passage, we would have a very different understanding of the Christian faith. We would perhaps be overly focused on works, not really understanding the wonder and beauty of grace which we've heard proclaimed for us in the songs and even in our prayer today. But we're going to see how James and Paul harmonize together for the glory of God. If we're going to make any theological sense out of this passage, and all of these bold declarations, such as verse 17 where it says, So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead. And verse 24, So you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. We're going to have to be very clear as to the nature of faith that these verses describe. Are we talking about the faith proclaimed in Romans 5 verse 1, where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 11:6, where we read, If it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I believe the best way to read this passage and to preserve its proper place in the canon of Scripture or in the chorus, as, we've as I've described, is not to see the works as a necessary addition to saving faith, but to look at saving faith as a different kind of faith altogether than a man-centered or heart-generated faith. God-given saving faith is active in its very nature. You can't remove the works and still call it faith. So today we're going to examine the contrast between two kinds of faith, dead, solitary faith and dynamic, saving faith. The verses I've already highlighted in our passage clearly show us what dead, solitary faith looks like. It's quite simply faith that is not accompanied by works. What good is it if someone says that he has faith, but he does not have works? The big question is, and right from James's pen here, can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. Dead, Solitary faith is a faith of empty profession. A profession of faith, that is the outward agreement with the gospel, without the fruit of repentance or the evidence of good works, can be compared to the facade of a western village in a Hollywood movie. From the perspective of the camera, the building looks authentic and three-dimensional. But if you were to enter that building, you would see that it is not really a building at all. It is a one-dimensional deception designed to manipulate people's senses, helping them to suspend disbelief and immerse themselves in a story that never has and never could happen. In the case of dead, solitary faith, this facade is expressed in the form of words. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and fed, filled, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see, it's words without substance. It's easy to sound spiritual, to say the right things that impress the ears of those around us. 
It's easy to say, I'll pray for you, brother, and then walk away and forget that you ever said it. It's easy to say, let us know if there's anything we can do, with no intention of, any, of ever doing anything. Well, I'm quite sure that if my own life is anything like yours, we have all said and done similar things. Does this mean necessarily that our faith is dead? I don't believe so. But I do believe that faith consisting only of profession and completely lacking in action is dead faith. It is a solitary faith, not a saving faith. As James so emphatically states, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Or as the King James says, faith without works is dead being alone. It is dead, solitary faith. The mistake we make as Christians is seeing saving faith as exclusive of works, separate from works, standing alone. The old Reformed axiom shatters this mis misconception. It goes like this. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Just think about that for a minute. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. In other words, dynamic saving faith. By the way, a little interjection for the boys and girls. I'm using a big word called dynamic. Okay? Dynamic means alive and changing and powerful or growing and powerful. Dynamic faith. Our faith, saving faith, is faith that is alive and growing and powerful. And solitary means by itself. So we don't want that by itself faith. We want that alive faith. Uh, so, in other words, dynamic saving faith does not... does not live across the street from works. One can't be saved and go through life justified, waving at Mr. Works across the street, but never actually crossing paths with him. Faith and works lived happily together under the same roof called grace. As James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Or to put it positively, faith that has works is alive. Dynamic saving faith does not pursue works. It does not incorporate works. It has works. It produces works as a root produces shoots and as shoots produce fruit. You can think of the parable of the sower. If you want a, a real picture, it is the, the plant that produces fruit. That is a picture of the true believer. The shoots and the fruits are the very expression of faith. We tend to get caught up in a false dichotomy when we talk about faith and works. In verse, James, in verse 18, James sums up this dichotomy. And he says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. That's the way people tend to think. This or that. Faith or works. Professing believers tend to choose sides, not realizing there need not be a battle if we understand the nature of saving faith. Paul and James can be perfectly reconciled if we understand that both, both apostles embrace justification by faith and that both men regard faith as a gift of God, full of life and potential, which cannot by its very nature remain dormant. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, the apostle Paul talks about the gift of saving faith. 
He writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Now nowhere do Jay, does James ever deny the necessity of faith or the fact that it is a gift of God. Nowhere does he say we must work for faith or that faith itself is a work. Jay, neither James nor, nor Paul conflate faith and works. And if you read on to Ephesians 2 verse 10, that passage I just read from Paul, it says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has created beforehand that we should walk in them. What has God created beforehand so that we should walk in them? He has already created our good works that we should walk in them. He's saying that faith apart... Oh, um, sorry, I missed my spot here. That is why James can write, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying that faith apart from works will be revealed for the facade, for the sham that it is. Well, faith that produces works will give clear evidence that it is indeed the gift of God, not something that is generated within the human heart. The very evidence that the faith is from God is the work that it produces. In verse 19, James further illustrates the difference between dead, solitary faith and dynamic saving faith by talking about, of all things, the faith of demons. He writes, You believe that God is one. We sang, we sang the words, We believe the Lord our God is one, Father, Spirit, Son. The demons agree with all of that. He says, even the, even the demons believe. Uh, he, he writes, you believe that God is one. You do well, for even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe. They're orthodox in their theology. They believe in God's triune essence. They are aware of the essential unity of Father, Son, and Spirit. They believe that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. They believe that Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead actually succeed in making repentant sinners right with God. They believe in the second coming of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt. They believe every aspect of the law and every aspect of the gospel, and yet they shudder. I'm not saying they teach those things. Doctrines of demons are lies. But they can only lie because they know the truth. They tremble because they know that they have offended the God whom they fear, and that they know that Christ's death and resurrection were not for them, but for men. The demons, the angels that fell, have no hope of redemption. Christ, they are not made in Christ in God's image. They long to look into these things, but they cannot under understand. They're overwhelmed by the grace that God has shown to the human race, that God would redeem out of every tribe and nation a people for his own possession. They are the people, these are the people who have rebelled against him, just as the demons have. You may profess, confess, and even teach orthodox truth from the word of God, but if your life is characterized by works of darkness rather than works of righteousness, you have no more business claiming salvation than demons do. 
Possession of faith, profession of faith is not the same as possession of it. True faith involves not only confessing with the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, Romans 10, 9, but also believing in the heart, in the very essence of our being, that God has raised him from the dead. Heart belief changes behavior. When Jesus saves people, he gives them new hearts, hearts that seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Demons and false converts and unbelievers seek only their own interests. Redeemed hearts, saved hearts, regenerate hearts seek the interests of God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. The person who says that they have faith while hiding under the umbrella of grace, yet resists the royal law discussed earlier in James, producing no feet, no fruit in keeping with repentance, that person is in danger of the same judgment intended for the devil and his angels. Earlier in chapter 1, James chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, and you can look there if you like, uh, we see that to a believer, God's law is not oppressive at all. It is called the perfect law, and this seems almost like an oxymoron, doesn't it? The law of liberty. Isn't that a wonderful phrase, the law of liberty? The mark of the true believer is that he loves the law. He can read Psalm 119 and say, Amen, all the way through. And he adjusts his behavior when the law reveals a lapse in obedience, the way that a person adjusts their appearance when they look in the mirror and their tie is crooked or they got some mud on their face. An unbeliever walks away from his reflection in God's word. An unbeliever walks away with no compulsion to change anything. He's happy in his sin. Mere intellectual acceptance. Boys and girls, that means believing only in your brain. Superficial profession, saying with your mouth, can no more save a man than his good works can save him. Salvation is a work of God, which results in the works of God. That's important, and I'm going to repeat it. Salvation is a work of God which results in the works of God being carried out in the believer. So far, James has made some very strong claims. Now he turns his attention to defending these claims by using specific examples from the Old Testament. He says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes on to employ the very same example that Paul uses in Romans and in the passage of, from Galatians that we read earlier when arguing for justification by faith, the example of Abraham. It says in verse 21, Was not Abraham your father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Now, if Abraham was justified by works, and if people in general are justified by works and not by faith alone, it's hard to follow how the apostle Paul, led by the same Holy Spirit, could write in Galatians 2, verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. To resolve this apparent contradiction, we need only to understand that James and Paul are both looking at the same faith in this context. They're both looking at saving faith from opposite sides of a person's conversion. James is focused on the evidence of saving faith in believers who are motivated and empowered to do good works. Well, Paul is looking backward at the primacy of faith in justifying lost sinners. James does not deny justification by faith. Rather, he defines justifying faith as faith that produces works. He rightly acknowledges in verse 23 that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Direct quotation from Genesis. And he was called a friend of God. Then immediately he adds, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now the specific works that James has in mind are bound together with worship. Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 makes it clear that Abraham did this because he believed God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. He believed he'd get his son back. God had promised, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. And Abraham took him at his word. He tied Isaac down to the altar and in worshipful obedience, probably with a trembling hand, raised his knife ready to slaughter his own son. We know that God graciously intervened, not by raising Isaac from the dead, but figuratively giving his son back from the dead by providing a ram to be sacrificed in his place. When James speaks of works, he's not only talking about works of charity, good deeds, but also worship. Every other act of obedience that brings glory to God. Baptism. Observing the Lord's Supper. Abraham believed God, and the evidence that he believed was his act or work of worship in offering up his son. The works did not in themselves justify, but instead faith was active along with works and completed or complemented by the works. You see, the evidence of works proves that faith is genuine and not a mere facade. But wait, isn't it wrong to think that faith is completed by works? Doesn't that contradict the theology we understand about salvation? Isn't that legalism? Doesn't that add to grace? Isn't that the Galatian heresy? Beginning in faith and now continuing by works? Not according to the Apostle Paul in, 1 Corinthians, uh, pardon me, in Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 7. Now, if you'd like, you can turn there. It's a longer passage, and it's pretty important. Uh, so that's second, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. Starting at verse 2, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, and listen closely to this, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice the phrases that are used here to describe the Thessalonians. Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of, steadfastness of hope. There is no denying that the gifts of faith and love and hope are made visible through activity. Work, labor, and steadfastness all involve effort and focus and intention on the part of believers. Imitating Paul and imitating the apostles and imitating Christ, that is active, that is working. As we read a little further, we see that Paul and his companions say with confidence that they know that God has chosen the Thessalonians. Now how can they say, we know you're chosen? Do they have some great insight into divine election? Are they deranged hyper-Calvinists? How can they say this? Well, as a result of the powerful gospel, the Thessalonians have become imitators of the apostles and of the Lord. That's how they can have confidence and say without hesitation, we know you have faith because we see its results. We see God's work through your works. The Thessalonians received the life-giving word, and that word produced faith. And that faith, despite much affliction, enabled the Thessalonians to become an example to all believers, including us. Friends, this is dynamic, saving faith manifest in the works of true believers. It is exactly the same faith that James writes about here in our text. Paul and James are not in conflict. Now, in order to illustrate the necessity of this kind of faith, James draws another Old Testament example. Rahab the prostitute. Did you know that Rahab is listed in Matthew's lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's pretty amazing. The gulf that God spanned to bring Jesus into this world as the humble, suffering servant who would die for our sins says here in verse 25 and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way we learn from the Old Testament account that Rahab believed that God was with Israel and that the message and also with the messengers that came to her she knew that God was the only true God she also feared the Lord listen to what she said to the messengers in Joshua 2, verses 10 and 11. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What a statement of the sovereignty of God. I would say that that is a profession of faith. But it was her selfless, faithful action of hiding the men from the authorities that gave evidence of her faith. If she merely accepted that these messengers were 
from God without the resulting action, that would have turned to her own destruction, but also would have resulted in the calamity of the whole of Israel. And can you imagine the very lineage of Messiah was at stake? But God wasn't rolling the dice, gambling on the goodness of Rahab's heart. No, God gave this woman faith, and that faith was genuine, and his purpose was accomplished. Do you see how she fled in faith to the mercy of God? She knew that God was the righteous judge. She knew that he was a holy God. She knew that she was a prostitute, and that all of earth was under his sovereignty, and yet rather than running from him and trying to escape. She stood with him. In effect, she ran to him and received his mercy. God received her because this was saving faith. It was God-initiated, dynamic, saving faith, doing the works that God had ordained beforehand. Rahab is even included by the writer of Hebrews in the Faith Hall of Fame. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Paul gives, uh, James says, this is an example of works. The writer of Hebrews says, this is faith. We need to understand they're talking about the same thing. Uh, so, even though that name, the Faith Hall of Fame, that's a human title, it's a very good one. It's not called the Works Hall of Fame. It's a Faith Hall of Fame. She's memorialized in this hall, along with many others, including Abraham... <laughs> who are there because of their faith. Rather than diminishing the importance of faith, James shows us clearly what this faith looks like in practice. James closes this section with an analogy. He says, As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. If you were to find a body washed up on a beach, the first thing you would do would be to look for signs of life. Is there a pulse? Is there breath? Is there movement? And if you found none of these signs, but the body was still warm, you might try to resuscitate it by breathing into its lungs, by compressing its chest. My friends, a true gospel breathes life into a corpse that has no life in itself. The true gospel breathes life into dry bones as in Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel looked at the bones and he said, Behold, they're very dry. We're not talking about a recently expired person who could be resuscitated. We're talking about someone who is dead in trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God, who cannot even seek after God. The true gospel breathes life into this corpse. Its power is irresistible and its effects are undeniable. Think of Ezekiel's vision, those bones, they start to, to shake and they all come together. And then he says, prophesy to the breath. And then the breath comes in and they, they live. That's an undeniable effect and it's no less dramatic than what happens when a lost sinner is born again. The true gospel breathes life into the corpse. Irresistible undeniable effects. Christ Jesus died and rose from the, from the dead to, give, to bring dead sinners to life. Through him, repentant, through him, repentance and faith are granted when spiritually dead hearts are raised to life and dead spiritual lungs are filled with the very breath of life, the Spirit of God. 
perhaps even today, that you have discovered or you have a suspicion that you're spiritually dead. That your faith is not the faith that comes from God, but, it, but that faith is originated in you. It's a faith that has been confessed with the mouth, but never believed in the heart, because the heart is still dead. You see this today. It is by the grace of God. Christ calls you to repent and believe that he has done what you could never do. He has fulfilled the righteous requirements of holy God. He has died in the place of sinners and was raised to life in order to justify all, to all who would come to God through him. You cannot justify yourself. But through Jesus, God is not only the judge, but the justifier. And God is a God who justifies the ungodly. When the shepherds, when a shepherd calls his sheep, when the shepherd calls his sheep, according to the Gospel of John in chapter 10, his sheep, his sheep know his voice. His sheep hear his voice and his sheep come to him. There are many other sheep in the fold, but only his sheep respond to his voice. My question is today, today is, do you hear the shepherd's voice calling you as the word of God is preached? You may never have heard this voice before, but today it has penetrated your heart and you are suddenly aware that your very life is bound to this great shepherd. Come to him. Jesus declares in John 6, 37, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. In John chapter 11, Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that Lazarus had been dead in that tomb four days, knowing that by this time he smelled rotten, that there was no life in him. He didn't go up to the tomb, roll away the stone, and say, Lazarus, do you think you could find it in your heart to believe that I can raise you from, a, from the dead? Lazarus had no ability. Lazarus had no inclination. Lazarus was dead. But what did Jesus do? He stood outside the tomb and cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And his very word brought life to that dead man. I know this is a historical event. I'm not trying to make an allegory. But it's also an accurate picture of salvation. The role of man consists solely of being raised from the dead. He initiates nothing. God is the sole actor in salvation. But consider the result. The dead man now lives. He breathes. He walks. There is evidence of life. Not merely a transformed life, but a regenerated life. This is dynamic saving faith. The gospel is the power, the dunamos of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is not an invitation, it is a command. Jesus is calling, not cajoling. He is not asking you to tweak a few things, to work a little harder. He's not pleading with you to let him into your heart. He's calling you to live, to come forth from the grave. He is calling you from the sheepfold of all humanity. If you are not his sheep, his voice will not even register in your ears. But if you hear his voice, you have one course, and that is to come. If he's given you faith, he's also given you feet to walk out of the sheepfold and join him as he leads you in green pastures beside the still waters. 
through the valley of the shadow of death, and ultimately to the house of the Lord, where you will dwell with him forever. Dead, solitary faith leaves the tomb, or never leaves the tomb, and never leaves the sheepfold. It shows no evidence of life. It does not recognize the Savior's voice. It stays the way it has always been. But dynamic, saving faith gladly and joyfully works. Following the shepherd, following the Savior, this faith cannot be mistaken for death. I want to close now by juxtaposing James and Paul just one more time so we can see at a glance the harmony of the messages they preach. James says, Faith apart from works is dead, being by itself. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8-10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And one more text from Paul, Philippians 2, verses 12 to, 6, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, faith without works is dead. But the works that come out of genuine faith, and even the will to do those works, is a result of God's work in us. A saved man will never be mistaken for a dead man. He is animated by the Spirit of God, to do the works ordained by God, with desire supplied by God, and the result is the glory of God. Amen. Let's uh, pray, and Andrea, I'd like to, the, the second song about the man running to Jesus. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, I pray that First of all, I, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the harmony, the agreement of all of Scripture. Lord, this is not a library thrown together of all kinds of different themes, but it's a unified volume, and it's a precious testimony of your word.